listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. i got to tell you something, people. <laughs> my guest today is a friend on Facebook, and he's from North Jersey, not from South Jersey. Now, people, when I lived in L.A., didn't understand that I would say I was from Philly instead of South Jersey, because when I said I was from Philly... They knew I was an Eagles fan, but when I said I was from New Jersey, they think automatically I was a Giants fan, which I despise the Giants, but my guest happens to be a very big Giants fan. And I was thinking how we were both probably in misery today, because in the first time, both our teams really suck. Our whole division sucks. Any team can win it now. A team who's like 5-11, and 11, well, the Eagles 5-10-1, <laughs> can win the division. And my guest is a very talented gentleman and a big Giants fan. And my guest is Charlie Schlatter. How you doing, Charlie? I'm good, Steve. But in, in the case of the Eagles, it could be four eleven and one yeah. as of yesterday. Isn't it? Isn't it crazy? Like you know, you sit there, and you know, as we get older, I'm, I'm 56. I think you're just a few years younger than me. We we try to get we get, try to get away from sports, but then we go through coronavirus, and we're stuck inside, and we're all excited. I'm all excited about the Eagles, yeah. and then you just sit there, and we're we're watching it yesterday. <laughs> me, my wife, and my buddy. And we're like, are, is, is this for real? Like, like this is a team. The Bengals suck. And it must be for the Giants. You guys have injuries. But then the Niners were so beat up. I mean, you must have been going through the roof. You know, listen, because you, you, you've had lean years yourself. So I, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to rebuild a team. Um, but, you know, my patience is wearing a little bit thin. I have to say the toughest part about being a Giants fan these days is the other Giants fans. You know, like, there's all these new, and I don't want to crap on Millennials or Gen Z or whatever, but you know what I mean? They're all kind of entitled to a title. We had to go through years and years of, of poverty and, you know, walking up hills in the snow, miles on it, to get to that chalice. And these bastards, they all think, you know, they, it, get, rid of, get rid of Jones, get rid of this guy, get rid of Saquon. You know what? Give it some time, guy. It'll all happen. Like I love Joe Judge. He's the coach that that I think we've needed for a long time. As far as Gettleman, you know, I don't know. That guy could probably go home. He's probably the only guy I would I would say go away. But otherwise, you know what? It's it's the youngest team in a man's league. They're what would like twenty four years old. So you got to have some some patience. But you know what? Not, you know what I hate. And I, I'm sure you run into them. Well, you're in L.A., so you run into them all the time. But you probably run into them with friends in North Jersey. I hate someone who's, let's say, well, for me, an Eagles fan, or if you, for you, a Giants fan, who is from our area where we grew up and is a Cowboys fan. I hate that because you get it. I go, I go. What are you, what are you thinking? Like, first of all, yeah, this, you're not even close to Dallas. That's the most, yeah. especially if they're over, like. If they're like they, you know, they jumped on the bandwagon for the championships. Like these thirty-five-year-olds, you go, you know, you were like two when they won a yeah. championship. Just shut up. As for the, you know, listen. As for the guys that are our age, that that happened to for some reason, they became Dallas fans. I think it's because they grew up in that era when they truly were America's team, and it was kind of one of the only highlighted teams. And you had Roger Staubach. You had just had you had great players, and Tom Landry was a great coach. And I think people were attracted to that. I think the franchise now is complete garbage, and I say that proudly because I do have a lot of friends that are still. But it's so funny, like a lot of guys that just grew up also in in areas that didn't have a solid football team, just kind of gravitated toward the Dallas Cowboys. And on the other side of the token, a lot of them gravitated toward the Pittsburgh Steelers, which I totally understand because that was an insanely awesome dynasty with Terry Bradshaw, Mean Joe Green, Lynn Swan. All those guys, those guys were killers. So I get that, but the Dallas thing, the cowgirls, you know, who cares? Get out of here. <laughs> now, you're a big sports fan. I know, <laughs> I, I'll tell you something. I, I said I, I can't, I, it just drives me crazy. But and I, I'm living in L.A. I lived in Burbank for years before the Eagles won a Super Bowl. And I would walk down to Black Angus and I'd watch the Eagles game. You know, I'd get up at happy hour at 10 in the morning. I'm like, yeah, you know, give me a bloody <laughs> Mary. All green. Yeah, and I would, I would watch it, and I have a few friends come down, and I would watch it with Giants fans and some Cowboys fans, and they sure. always gave me shit. And it's funny, is me and my wife, we moved back to New Jersey three years ago, and that's the year the Eagles won the Super Bowl. 
And for me, I was sort of hoping, I was glad I was here because we went to the parade. It was insane. But I was sort of glad I could have just gone to the bars I used to hang out in Burbank and do a victory lap and give everybody the finger and say, shut up, bitches. (laughs) Yeah. Remember me, the Eagles fan, the guy in green? How you like me now? No, you're a big sports fan. And you're an actor. Of course, we all know that. Now, did you play sports in high school or did you get into acting in high school? I mean, what was your... What was your path? What, what, what was a Charlie in high school like? Uh, well, right up, you know, I, I played, uh, I always played sports. Everyone played sports. No one played soccer. That was, that was the one thing no one did back east. And I don't know if it was like that down in South Jersey, but in North Jersey, if you played soccer, you had a problem, you know, <laughs> and, and you get beat up a lot. And I, I wish that that wasn't the case because that had become, that you know, years ago, that became my, my favorite sport. It's because I was coaching my son, and, and I just fell in love with the sport, and I thought, gosh, I wish we had this when I was growing up, you know, a respect for it. Um, but I obviously didn't play basketball because I'm like 4'11", and I played, uh, I, I played, I played baseball. That was, that was my sport. I always played baseball, and then I played baseball up until uh, in high school, but then had to make a choice whether or not I wanted to do theater because the plays, like if you wanted to be in the musical, I think it was the musical or whatever, that conflicted with the schedule for baseball. And there were definitely more girls on the sidelines during musicals than there were coming to baseball games. You know, it was like the star pitcher's mom. That was it. She'd be the only one in the stands. So I chose that. And I think I chose the right path, I think. Well, well, what made you get in? When did you fall in love with acting? What made you want to follow that? Because I know a lot of people say... You know, same thing in high school. They go, hey, there's more chicks, you know, or something. But, yeah. but what, what made you gravitate towards going into acting? Well, you know, on, on, a, on a serious note, I, I think uh, I, my seventh grade was doing a production of Oliver. And uh, there was a girl, again, girl fits in the equation. And she thought it would be really cute if I auditioned and was Oliver. And so I said, okay. And I auditioned for it, and yeah, I became Oliver. And with that, I just really liked it. And, and being in that environment, it, it came on the heels of a bit of a tragedy in my life. And it was a really cool way to express yourself without having to truly express yourself. And um, and I think just the whole process of it, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was very cathartic. And so... Uh, you know, a lot of times it's 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 still a job to me, but there are times every now and then that that part of that reason for why I do it comes back to to the top. You know, I don't know if that makes any sense, but oh, it totally does. I mean, you know, something that you know it was it was there for you. It was it was a it was made you relax and take your mind off things. I think we all go through that. And, yeah, it's uh, an outlet. It's like music. It's like any any art. You know what I mean? It's like. Uh, you just want, I play guitar. You just got to get away. I got to go somewhere and just sit and play guitar. I got to play piano. I got to do something creative. And that was, that That just seemed like the easiest outlet at that time to, you know, to to be honest. So what was it like when you, I guess, when you got out of high school, did you go to college to pursue acting? Or when did you get into acting? Because, you know, people don't understand. I, I try to understand people because I, I used to be a stand-up comic. I used to go on the road. And we used to sit there and send our video cassette and our pictures. And a press kit would cost right. you like five bucks for a gig that pays 50. And after a while, yep. you're like, I guess. But when, when, did you, when did you break into acting? When did you know you wanted to do it? I mean, like for your career. And being a comic, that's, I think that's probably one of the toughest grinds ever. And, and I'll get into that later, too, because a lot of my friends were comics uh, when I first moved out to L.A. But I, uh, <clears throat> I actually didn't want to go to college because I just thought, you know, I, I just, I just want to be an actor, Mom, Dad. That's all I want to do. And they said, no, you have to go to college because no one in my family had gone to college. And um, I said, well, if there's such a thing as a musical theater program, I'll, I'll do that. And sure enough, there's like hundreds of them. And I went to Ithaca College in upstate New York, uh, and, and they were great. Um, loved what I was doing, and, and I recommend that to any young actor to take the academic route. When it comes to acting, it's your chance to, it's your right to fail in plays. It's your right to just be anything you want to be. It's awesome. Um, and then I was doing a play in the town of Ithaca in upstate New York and was kind of, quote-unquote, discovered. 
uh, by a casting agent who had me come in and basically audition for uh, a movie called Bright Lights Big City with Michael J. Fox. And I, I got it that day. And so from that day on, I became a professional actor. It was really weird. It's like that usually doesn't happen. I honestly... I set the bar so low. I really thought, okay, I'll, I'll try and finish college, and then I'll just audition for stuff in New York and live in a crappy little apartment like all my other friends were doing and, you know, hustle for a buck. And like I said, you know, and then after that movie, a couple of years later, I'm living in L.A., and just it is what it is now. Now, what was it like when you went in that first audition? Do you think it was... Because you didn't have any high expectations, you just didn't give a crap, and you said, "Because you know how yeah. people get all like, oh my god, you know, they get into their heads." Were you just like, eh, it's a, eh, eh? I mean, what was it like Ex when you went in? Exactly, because I, I knew that this was after my, uh, this was the summer of my junior year of college, so I just thought, well, if this doesn't happen. Who cares? I'm going to go back and, and finish my, my senior year, whatever. And In fact, right after I did that movie, I went back up and finished the play Tartuffe that summer. So to me, it really didn't matter. But I, I went in there just with an open attitude. And, you know, I auditioned for the casting director. She said, gosh, you're really good. Do you want to meet the director? I said, okay. And I read with the director. And he said, do you want to read with Michael J. Fox? I said, okay. And he came into the room and, you know, he liked the jacket I was wearing. And I told him he could have it. And Anyway, he just said, I just really want you to be in this movie. I said, okay. And, and that was it. You know, um, I, I, think, I think at that time, having that attitude does help. I mean, it, it, it just conveys the fact that you're, you're confident in what you're doing. Um, you know, because then, then you do get to a certain point in life where you have a, a wife and family, and it's like, oh, I need this job. I really need this, you know. And they smell that shit coming a mile away. Um, and now I'm back at that point where I just I just don't care anymore. <laughs> See? You know, and I, I do care. I care about what I do. I just, I, I have like no emotional attachment really to many of the auditions that I go on or cartoons or whatever. I love the stuff that I'm doing and I'm comfortable enough that I could, not that I could pick and choose, but there are things that I could look at and go, it's just not worth it. You know what I mean? It's not worth my sanity. It's not worth my time. And even like my voiceover career came at a time when I was just saying no to on-camera stuff because I wanted to be home. I, I had little kids at the time, and I, I wanted to be a coach. I wanted to be the guy at my daughter's recitals. I didn't want to miss anything. And I, I was really fortunate, you know, um, and I have a, a really nice voiceover career um, that, I, that I focused on and, and really put my attention on. And, and that afforded me the chance to be the dad I am. Um, my kids may not say I'm the best dad, but I'll <laughs> say I am. And uh, anyway, <clears throat> you know, and for, the, and for my kids as well, they really didn't like it when someone would come up to me and ask for an autograph because I, I just in fact I was still doing this diagnosis murder show with Dick Van Dyke so it's mostly elderly people that knew me but nonetheless they would come up and ask you know for quite you know for an autograph or something and it just kind of made my kids a little weird about it and then not that long ago they said hey dad we kind of think you should try and be fancy again and so I said okay so you know a few years ago I, I kind of started you know just kind of getting back into the business a bit now, do you think because, you know, you had you had Bright Lights Big City, okay, off yeah. your first audition, and then you do 18 again, you know, you're yeah. in a movie with George Burns, I mean, a legend. I mean, do you think because you got so quick the, the, the roles, I mean, I don't know, how long was 18 again after Bright Lights? That was, uh, I shot Bright Lights Big City, I think in the summer, and then by that winter, I was doing, uh, I think we started shooting in November or October, uh, so it was the late fall in, uh, when we did 18 again. So it happened pretty fast. Do you think that that helped you later when you said, you know, I want to be a dad, I want to be a coach? Do you think that helped that early success just for the fact that you already had success? I mean, I know people think it's weird. Some people think you need longevity, but you were in the public eye. You were on a hit series. You were in the TV show version of Ferris Bueller. Do you think that made it easier for you to say, all right, I can back off because I've already accomplished being on front of camera. I want to accomplish being a dad. I don't know. You know, in, in a way, 
in a way it could hurt you um you know you sometimes you say no to enough things and you just know yourself into oblivion you know and then so you have to still it's really difficult it's a difficult balance between you know saying i'm going to take some time for me and my family and saying to yourself I really have to keep doing stuff so that it's like when people post on their Instagram, got to post so people know I'm alive, got to post, you know. So back then it was kind of like that, got to gotta be in a show, let people know I'm still alive. Um, so, you know, but to me, it, it is, it's about longevity more than, more than anything else. And, and so I'm, I'm most proud of that, that that's, you know, acting is the only job I've ever had since 1987, I think. I've been a member of SAG. So that's been my sole source of support ever since. Um, you know, I've done some good stuff, some bad stuff. But I, I do think, uh, you know, I'm a living testament to the fact that you can actually make a living acting. And there's so many different aspects of it. And, what you know, you don't necessarily have to be the guy in the public eye all the time. You could corner up and write. You could, you know, it's, it's just meeting people and, and doing the right thing and just kind of not being a douche as you go on. <laughs> now, now, what was it? Like? I have been a douchebag too. Just don't get me wrong. No, 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 you have. You I'm see, from so Jersey, nice. come on. Yeah, yeah, but we're, we're good douchebags. Obviously, <laughs> we're dicks, but we know we're dicks, yeah. so we're not really. We understand dicks. each other. Yeah. Like if someone says, "Ah, Steve, you're a dick," I'm like, "I know." They go, oh, you know, "He's not bad. He's not a guy. Yeah. Um, he's a dick, but he's all right." Exactly. Yeah. So now, now, what was it like though, as a young kid, having to work with George Burns? I mean, you know, George Burns is just legendary, and I know we we didn't see the. I mean, we didn't see George. We saw the old George Burns with a cigar. You know, that's what we grew right. up watching. But he was such a iconic figure in Hollywood. What is that like when you go on? And it's one of your early roles. Do you, do you are you nervous, or do you think that he's just good? It just shine. I mean, what is your mind frame when you went on to that set to work with him? You know, it's funny when I, when I when I got the role. I, uh, I you know, of course, you go and you read with casting people first. Um, that was in New York, and I was actually living in New York at the time. And then they flew me out to Los Angeles to uh, read with the director and to kind of meet some other possible co-stars. But I never met George Burns. So it, that wasn't really until after I was given the role uh, and then came out to L.A. again with some luggage, stayed at the Oakwood Apartments near Burbank, you know, the ones. Um, and it was funny, you know. I was like, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna star in a movie. I'm I'm the lead guy in a movie," and I totally kind of even forgot that George Burns was in it. Uh, you know, I was on my own little cloud. And then finally, you know, the producer director they picked me up and we we drive to George's office in Beverly Hills. And you know, as you're walking down the hallway, you could smell those, you could smell the smoke from his cigar. So, so that's like the first thing that comes into reality is, okay, there's the first tangible of George Burns. And then they open a door and there he is sitting in this director chair, drinking tea out of a mug that says God. And I thought, oh my God, it's really George. And there's, there was just something so magical about the guy. It was like meeting Santa Claus for the first time. You know, it was, it was because, yeah, he was such a staple in our lives. And, yeah, we didn't know the Burns and Alan. We're too young for that. But but we knew the older guy from Sunshine Boys Up, you know, until the Oh God movies. And and he was just on Johnny Carson all the time or whatever. He was just a Hollywood fixture that we grew up with. Um, but I have to say, you know, he, he made me feel so comfortable. And, and it was. It was truly like working with your grandfather every day. And he's a Lower East Side guy, George Burns. And so was my grandfather. So... It's funny, like with that movie, whenever, because I had to switch souls with him. For those who don't know the movie, I switch souls with him and I kind of become him. And there were times when I didn't know what George Burns would do or sound like, but I know what my grandfather, Charlie Schlatter, from the Lower East Side, would sound like and do. So that's kind of the guy I tried to bring to that movie as well. Um, but it was great watching him flirt with my mom, uh, <laughs> you know, getting Christmas cards from him. He just was, I, I can't even tell you, Steve, he was such a gentleman, and, you know, he, he'd show up on the set, where's the kid, and he'd hug me and kiss me, he'd slap me, say, stop kissing boys. Um, he was just, he was just awesome. I mean, just an awesome, awesome soul. Really fortunate to have been in his presence. So you do that movie, and, you know, 
you became a heartthrob. It's not lie. I mean, you know, the, the girls loved you, and you know, we were all at the age, like you know, back then, like girls. I mean, as I said, eighty-eight. You're 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 probably twenty-one or whatever. What, yeah, young. What what is what is it like when all of a sudden you become a heartthrob? Because I know I don't know for a fact, but I guarantee you've been on Tiger Beat. I guarantee you've probably been on Tiger Beat. <laughs> I think yeah, I think I was on a, I think I was, I was on a few of those things, but you know there there's there was always that guy who was who had the bigger picture on Tiger Beat, so that kind of kept you, you level. You know what I mean? And listen, you're you're a Jersey guy, so you know you have friends that just keep you level, that bring you right back and say, "Dude, you're not all that. Just shut up." And, you know, um, so it, it was fun, and and I certainly tried to take advantage of it as much as I could. Um, you know, in fact, I remember being at a Rolling Stones concert and some girl's going crazy over me. She's like, oh, my God, you're the boy from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which I'm not. And I said, of course I am, you know, but I was recognizable enough that she, anyway. Um, it was it was fun. It was a fun time. But I, I will say this. It also got to a point, like, especially um, during Ferris Bueller, because um, now you're on TV. And, you know, you could be a guy in a brawny commercial and people recognize you. And that was, to me, I, that was a, that was too much recognition. I, I didn't enjoy that very much, to be honest with you. Um, I liked I liked being on the Diagnosis Murder Show because that, that was like several years later. And that fan base was very polite and, like I said, older. So, you know, they'd say, oh, doctor, I have angina that I need, or whatever, can you check my liver? You know, oh, I get it, because I'm a doctor on TV. Uh, and those people were so sweet, um, and you could do a lot of stuff with that type of celebrity. The Ferris thing was just, I don't know, it, was, it attracted a weird crowd. <laughs> now, do you think, and it's funny, because, you know, it's all changed now because of social media, and I've talked to people in bands, Guy Ray Lazier, I know, became the drummer of Korn. And oh, wow. people were just um brutal. Now are you a drummer? Are you a drummer, no, Steve? I just my friend Rich Redman is a drummer and he's introduced me to all these drummers. So I've had a ton of drummers on my show. Okay. But, but he he said, you know, people were just brutal. Do you think if social media was around, do you think people were giving you a hard time about Ferris Bueller because you knew the movie, everyone knew that movie, and it was a yeah. John Hughes thing. And now you're bringing someone in and you're recognizable and people know you and people like you. But do you think people would have given you a hard time for playing a role that you didn't create? And would they? You, I mean, what do you think? Because now people, you can't even do anything without someone going, "Oh, that he sucks at that," or "He sucks at that." I mean, what do you think would have happened? Ab- absolutely. I mean, it, it was it was like that getting fan letters. You know, half the fan letters were, "Hey, I really like the show. I love what you're doing." The half were, "You know, you should go kill yourself because you're not Matthew Broderick and you're not fair." You go, "Okay." Um, I'm kind of glad that it lasted one season. Here's the thing about that show, too. It was it was a really great pilot. It was a great pilot script that was written by John Macius, who had done um, Staying Elsewhere. So he had a really good track record. We had the director um, from uh, uh, my cousin Vinny. I'm blanking on his name right now. British guy. Uh, I was just talking about him, too. See, this isn't easy getting older. This is when these things start to fall apart. Um, but anyway, great. To, we had so many great people involved in that pilot. It was tough to say no to. You know, it, I didn't have to audition for it, anything. This was NBC. It was Brandon Tartikoff said, hey, would you come meet with us? We want to talk to you about a show that we'd love you to be in. And this is the bag of money we want to give you. And I said, okay. You know, I'm at CAA at the time, uh, Creative Artists Agency, um, and and they were really good at getting clients money. You know, um, I probably, in hindsight, should have stayed with my smaller agency. I was with this woman named Heidi Powers in New York. She was at a company called J. Michael Bloom, and they were really good at finding talent. Um, They weren't great at keeping talent, but they were really good at, at farming talent. And relationship with her... That was so great, and she was very motherly and really cared about me. But then you come out to L.A., and you're in a, a room with all these beautiful Armani suits, and they all smell nice, and they say the right things, and they had cell phones before anybody else had phones. You know, and so I, I went with those guys, and this was basically, a, you know, we're going to get Charlie Schlatter a lot of money for something that's really potentially not going to be that great. And, and I think they kind of knew it, but like I said, the pilot was good, but then it kind of went downhill. 
Um, and I have no regrets. You know, it just, it is what it is. We've all done a Ferris Bueller in our lives. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 getting back to your point, though, yeah, if this was on social media, it'd be a horrible hashtag. I don't, I don't know what it would be. It, would, it, it, it wouldn't be life-crushing, but it would certainly, like, you know, I, I'm pretty thick-skinned. But every now and then, it's like, oh, someone does say something that you go, wow, that, that kind of sucked. <laughs> now, now, in a situation like that, when it got canceled or whatever happened, were you sort of relieved? Because if you go, as an actor, yeah. if you go into a project that you take was for this, it was the money. And of course, you're not going to turn down the money because you're young and it's a series and yeah, you're in L.A. But yeah. is, is there a relief or any other projects you've been in where you got done shooting and you just said, thank you. God, this shit is over because I was walking on eggshells or I was just miserable. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. I the, the, the best thing about Ferris Bueller was I really loved the people that I was working with. You know, the product itself wasn't great, but, but I really, I enjoyed showing up to work every day. I really, so I, I was never walking on eggshells around that. But when I got the call saying, hey, listen, they're not picking it up, a, it wasn't a surprise because we were just so in the middle of the ratings. It's like, why are they even, you know, floating this thing? Um, and then B, it was like, good, you know, let's just kind of move on. I loved doing Diagnosis Murder, and I did that, I think, for like six plus seasons. And that was one where I thought, you know what, if if it doesn't get canceled this year, I may have to have a talk with Mr. Van Dyke and say, hey... I can't, I don't, I kind of don't want to do this anymore. Uh, it got to the point where, you know, how, how many episodes can you just interview the night watchman? It was, it was the same thing over and over again. And that's, that's tough for a guy who, you know, I think I was 30 when I started that, maybe a little, maybe a little old, maybe like 32, something like that. So for that aged guy, it was difficult. For me now, if you told me, because I'm 50, what am I, 54? If you told me now you're going to do this thing for the rest of your life, you're like, yeah, that's good. I like being part of a team. I, I do. I always liked being part of a team. So that aspect of being on a show is great. And, and at this point, I'd be like, yeah, I'll interview that Night Watchman. If it's, you know, because the company was so great. The people that I spent every day with, Steve, were just such lovely ladies and gentlemen, and it started at the top with Dick Van Dyke being awesome, um, as gonna, you can I, imagine. I was going to ask you about, you know, because you think about it, you know, if someone who loves entertainment like I do, you know, to think of someone you got to work with George Burns, and then later you get to work with Dick Van Dyke, who's so iconic in the Dick Van Dyke show, yeah. just to being Dick Van Dyke. What was it, what, were you intimidated at all with him when you got on that show? Because once again... He's an icon, and you know, and he's an icon, and you don't, you know, sometimes you may feel like, well, it'd be like you're you're a back, you're a minor league shortstop, and they bring you up, yeah. and then you're playing, you know, you're playing next to, you know, well, if you're a third yeah. baseman, you're playing next to Jeter, you know, you'd be like, exactly. oh my god, what was it like when you first met him, and did he make you feel at ease? Oh, he, you know, what, what's great about him is that he's an icon, and he doesn't even know it, you know, and. I do remember it was kind of the same process. You 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 go in, you audition, casting. They bring in a bunch of guys. It was me and a bunch of like. It's so funny because even the name Jesse Travis, they were kind of looking for like this six foot four surfer dude, whatever. When <laughs> they bring in the five foot four non surfer dude, and I ended up getting it, but because I think he wanted someone that was just kind of funny. And anyway, so I I read for the you know, the, the powers that be. And then they said, okay, we want to have like a, a chemistry test, whatever. And we're going to have Mr. Van Dyke come in with you and you're going to read and it's going to be network people and Fred Silverman. And so, um, <clears throat> he was so wonderful. We read together. And when I was done reading and he's laughing, he says, Charlie, God, he, he goes, um, we've met before, haven't we? <clears throat> and I said, no, no, sir, we haven't. And he goes, are you sure? And I go, dude, you're Dick Van Dyke. If I met you, I am 100% positive I would have remembered. And he's like, oh, okay, I guess so. You know, I don't... Anyway, but that's like, you know, he really didn't think that I would remember meeting him. He's that humble. Um, and from that moment on, I mean, he really just made you feel totally comfortable. I will say there was one time I was placed in between, just off the set, I found myself in between 
Dick Van Dyke and Andy Griffith. And that was kind of, that was just like a really surreal moment in my life when I thought I got like a hundred years of television history on my sides. And, and as a, as a young man in the business, that was, that was pretty great. And another question people ask me all the time, Steve is, you know, what advice did he give you? Um, and they don't, you know what I mean? George Burns doesn't give advice. Dick Van Dyke doesn't give advice. I think they just, you, you learn by their example. Uh, and, and they teach you that it's, it could be a really great business to be in for the rest of your life if you, if you enjoy it and if you are kind to people and, and if you take it seriously. Um, it is. It, it could be there forever. Uh, and, and it's just, you know, Dick was the first guy there. You know what I mean? He was always on time, never complained. Same thing with George Burns, never complained. But you'd be sitting next to some 20-year-old who said, oh, my God, are we still here? I have friends meeting me at Spice tonight. Whatever. Uh, and, and I think, oh, my, you know, George Burns is a million years old and he's not complaining. Shut up. And, I, and so, you know, I know I could be digging holes for a living. I truly know that. So I, I look at my life that way and I just think how fortunate I am. Now, you you have a voice career, too. Um, when did you decide to go, I mean, you said earlier when you got married, but, but was branching into a voice easier, I mean, was it easier then? Because back then, it's not like now, there's not so much animation and cartoons and everything. There wasn't as much, you know, every now there's a cartoon network, this and this and this. How did you break into the voice business? I mean, it was something, when did you start? You know, I just got, I literally got really lucky. Um, I... I, I had a great voiceover agent. I was with this company called Sutton, Barth, and Venari. I was with them for like 18 years. Um, and one of my first auditions was just for, I think it was for Stars. We're Stars, a better movie channel. Something like that that I had to say. And then from there, you know, people know you're an actor, so you'd get called in and, and I auditioned for some some cartoons. And one of the first ones I got was called The Butt Ugly Martians. And it was with Rob Paulson, who I think has been a guest on your show. Yes. Um, Jess Arnell, Robert Stack, Kath Susi. So some of like the some of the heavy hitters in the animation industry. And I was basically hired just to do my own voice, to be like this young, heroic, whatever, Captain B. Babaluna was his name. Um, and so I really wasn't hired to be like one of those goofy characters. You know, I wasn't I'm not a it wasn't at that time a utility guy or anything. And in fact, like, it wasn't until like maybe five episodes in that, okay, Charlie, why don't you do like minion number four? And, you know, I'd have like an extra line. And it was really, you know, intimidating because those guys, if you know any of these voiceover guys, they're so good at what they do. And honestly, there's probably like 10 of them that do every show ever. So I always feel like I've I'm kind of like the 11th man. I feel like I'm always just a fringe guy, which is totally good. I like being that guy, uh, which is better than not being a guy at all. Um, but I, I have since then kind of developed a, a career as a, as a utility guy, too. So now I'll get called in for a show that I've never been on before, but they say, hey, we have three characters that we need you to do, whatever. But those guys were so great to me and so supportive. Um like, I literally, I'm not an impersonator, and some guys are, are so good at that. I'm not, but I can I can kind of impersonate people in my family and people that I grew up with. You know the story. And and so I used to show up with, like, an index card with, like, eight names on it, including, like, my father-in-law. And so if I had to be minion number three, I could go to my card and, oh, I'll do him as this guy or that guy. And then slowly but surely, that index is in your head now. So now you kind of know voices you can do, and you just become more and more comfortable doing it. But I, I've never been, you know, not until recently, but I, I used to never be hired to be that guy. I, I just, you know, I think I probably just have like a rubbery voice that can either sound like this or that. And, you know, I, I'm lucky. But I think first and foremost, they, they do like to have actors, you know, which is nice and so many times someone comes up to me and says, hey, I do a great Spongebob, or hey, I do a great... You know, so does Tom Kenny. He does a great Spongebob, and he is Spongebob. So get out of that. Get Stay in your lane. Um, but I don't know. Well, now, yeah, I was just fortunate. 
Now you also, and this is just funny, and I don't know if we were talking about this, but I, as I go through my research on IMDb, you were in a Police Academy movie. Now we're around the same age. We love final nail in the coffin. We used to love the Police Academy movies. You know, they were great. It was like Gutenberg, Gutenberg, but that's when Gutenberg was everywhere. I mean, anywhere you oh, see yeah. Steve Gutenberg, every here, there, there. What what made you decide to take the Police Academy movie? And were you glad? Was it one of the reasons because you enjoyed the movies when you were younger? No, it was money. What? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I gotta be honest with you. I, I liked the first one. I remember the first. Probably, I liked the second one too. Because yeah, we were, we were kids at the time. Uh, I mean, people were smoking in the theaters. That's how long ago that was. I, I do remember that. Um, but it's so funny. I, I uh, and I was with CAA at the time. And there was something, there was another movie. They came at me with, like, a lot of a lot of money. To, to me, it, it seemed like a lot of money. And they said, would you, you know, be interested in doing this uh, police academy thing? It's in Moscow. No one in the States will see it because it, does, it won't have release. Because it didn't have a cinematic release in the States. It was international without being released here. Um, and, and at that time, just so you know, like... For an actor, being in a police academy movie wasn't like, oh my god, this is the challenge. It was like, ah, uh, okay. You know, unless you were Gutenberg, unless you were the franchise, okay? Um, but I wasn't. And so, uh, you know, I get offered this thing to be a hired gun and, and, and do police academy in Moscow. And I said no at first because, like I said, there was another project that I was really hoping for. And that fell through. And then my agent said, well, do you want to see if uh, that police academy thing is still alive? And I said, okay, sure. And so he said, yeah, it's still alive, but they're only going to offer you half of what they offered you the first time. So I, I kind of went to Moscow with my tail between my legs. But um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not upset that I did it. it was, and in fact, it's so funny because people who do love that franchise, they really love it. I mean, those are, they're like Trekkies. They're huge, huge fans of that. I personally am not. You know what I mean? Uh, W.C. Fields. I know that people love, love, love that guy. I personally do not. So, you know what I mean? It's just, it's a taste issue with me. Um, but I like a lot of stupid things, too. I just, uh, yeah, it, that, that was one of those things where they say, well, here's some money. You want to go out there? And it was, it was a rough time because it was 1993, and it was during the coup. So we were literally being shot at on the streets. Now... You're acting, you're getting, you know, what kind of office were you getting? You know, you said you, you now you can turn down stuff, but, like, what were some of the scripts you were getting? You always talk to different people. Like, uh, Willie Garson was on uh, two weeks ago. Willie's been on a few times. Mm -hmm. and, and he had said how, you know, after Sex in the City, every, every script for a gay man was for him. And he said, I don't want to play it because yeah. I don't want to pitch my hole. After, like, in the younger part of your career, were you getting for, like, the... The, the, the cute kid who gets the girl or I mean what what and how much crap did you turn away um I remember Loverboy that, I think Loverboy was like the first movie I said no to I don't know if you remember that movie with Patrick um, with Patrick Dempsey yeah 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 and I remember meeting the writer and director in their apartment in New York with my agent and on paper it just it seemed like a porno and I said convince me I'm wrong and and they kind of couldn't. So it, and maybe it's because you know, like like now I'm old and I don't care what people see. Who cares? You know. But back then I was probably a little bit more vain, and I didn't want to like do naked scenes and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, license to drive. That was another one that came down the pike. Was, no, I. Um, so there there were a lot of those kind of goofy movies. Um, there was a movie that I didn't get offered, but that I, I didn't even realize I was being considered for until I read it in the trades. And it was during um, Ferris Bueller, and it was Billy Crystal, Robert Downey Jr., and Charlie Schlatter are the three top choices at this time for Chaplin, the Charlie Chaplin movie. It's like, oh, I'm being considered by Sir Richard Attenborough for some... <laughs> and anyway, you know, it, it went to probably the greatest actor that we know of in this generation, Robert Downey Jr., I think is just unbelievably great. Now, now, in your early days of Hollywood, who was your crowd? Like, who were you hanging out with? You know, there's always like, you know, you're, you're popular, you know people, you know, you work with Michael J. Fox, you work with this. Who was your in crowd? Like, who, was, who would Charlie be at the Hard Rock Cafe with or Planet Hollywood? Um, comics. When, when I first, you know, my, 
the management company I was with at the time was uh, uh, Brillstein Gray. So Sandy Wernick, Bernie Brillstein, all those guys, Mark Irvitz. And a lot of their clients were comedians, Dennis Miller. Uh, and, and so Dennis had golfed with a lot, but uh, Adam Sandler was a, a buddy of mine. David Spade was a guy I'd run around with, Robbie Schneider. In fact, Robbie, Dave, and I were in a club called the 130 Club. Those were guys who couldn't gain or couldn't actually weigh more than 130 if we tried, because um, we, were, we were little guys. Uh, I'm trying to, Judd Apatow was a guy I used to run around with that I had been, you know, he, he was still doing comedy, trying to get his stuff going. Uh, Jim Carrey, I remember going to several places with him. So again, it was just, it was comics, you know, and they were fun. Oh, and, and here's the other thing, too. Um, when I did first move out, I had... I had done that movie already, uh, 18 again, and Paulie Shore was uh, was in it. And, you know, his mom owned the comedy store. And so we used to hang out there. And I remember hanging out with him, Sam Kinison, Belzer, John Mendoza, um, Dice Clay. And it, it, was, it was a fun time. It was pretty crazy. John Mendoza is one of the funniest people, like, that oh. no one knows of. His one-liners. I was talking to him one time, and I'm like... Like, how do you remember all these jokes? I mean, you know, you go up and you do 40 minutes of one-liners. You have to be telling at least 400 jokes. How do you remember? Yeah. That's harder than remembering an acting part because an acting part, you can wing it a little bit. But with a comedy, and he never talks to the crowd. He just does no. it. I mean, he's, he's in his head. He's doing his shit. Yeah, he's he's so good. So good. So after diagnosis, diagnosis murder ended, you said you got in the voice. You went started going to voice. Because you wanted to be more with your kids. How old were your kids when diagnosis murder ended? Uh, let me see. My youngest was probably three or two. So I think I had like a two, probably like two, four, and six were the ages of my kids when that all went down. When I when we were done with diagnosis. Now that's when you decided. You know, you want to be a father. Yeah, even you know, it was even during that because it was during the hiatuses of uh, it was really during the hiatuses of diagnosis murder that I that I thought I, I really want to keep busy. I want to keep creative, but I don't want to leave town. And so um, that's when that's when the whole voiceover thing really started for me. It was like, well, look, here's this job that you could do. You could go somewhere for a couple hours and be creative and make your fart noises and go home and go be a dad. And no one bothers you. And I also fell in love with it because the people that I so far the people that I was working with at the time, people like Rob Paulson, Jess Harnell, Scott, all these it, it, it was like this club that I was a part of all of a sudden. And you record these things. For those who don't know, you, you kind of sit around in a semicircle, sometimes in a line, and you read the script, and it's like an old radio play. And you're really just kind of making each other laugh between takes. And what I loved about these guys, too, I, I was like the only on-camera guy that was doing a lot of this stuff. And they really enjoyed their anonymity. And, you know, like Rob could say, yeah, I'm, I'm Pinky from Pinky and the Brain, and I could go anywhere I want. Nobody knows it. And I thought, that's got to be, because, again, going back to the first Bueller days, I didn't really like being noticed. Um, and, and so I just thought, this is like the greatest thing ever. You could make the, the room laugh. You could make money. You could be creative. You could put out fun product and not have to be bothered by anybody. Cut to a few years after that was said, social media happens. And now it's like all those, and then conventions happen. So it's funny, like, so many of these guys who, like, bathed or basked in that anonymity all of a sudden became very hungry for this attention. And it's kind of become that with the VO world as well. Uh, it's, it's absolutely no different than on camera. Now, did you miss, when you first were pulling away from being on camera, did you miss being on camera at all? Because I know you were having fun sitting in a group, but did you miss actually flexing your your facial and everything you do as an actor, body language? Did you miss that at all when you started pulling away from in front of a camera acting? You know, I have to, I, well, yes and no. It's funny because... When you're doing voice acting, when you're doing cartoons, and there's some stuff that you do that you are, 
you're like more emotionally attached to some of the stuff that you do in front of a microphone than you are on a set, you know, because that's, that's almost more restricting is, okay, the camera, this, this, this. When you're doing something and you're in your own head, that's kind of very freeing. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know. There, there are some things that I've done that, that, yeah, it's like, this is, this is why I want to do this. This is satisfying. I did this thing on Shameless not terribly long ago, and I was like a total douchebag, and I broke things, and, and that was really fun. Um, and then, like, in the same breath, I was in this show called Feud with Jessica Lang and Susan Sarandon, and I remember sitting in between them and just doing my stuff, and I thought, this is really boring. Um, you know, I would rather be the voice of E.T. Uh, than, than do this other stuff. You know what I mean? I don't know. So, I didn't know this until I was rooting around the Charlie, Googling Charlie Schlatter. Cheerios. I did not know you were the B. And you were the B for a long, like, 15 years. How did that job come about? And that must have been a cash cow that you probably just made a few. You had the voice. I mean, how did that job come about? Because everybody knows that B. Be happy, be healthy. Uh, yeah, you know, that was just, I think there was, I actually know there was, there was another guy who was doing it. He's actually he's a pretty famous guy in his own right, and I don't know why that ended with him. Um, now that I'm no longer doing it, I kind of understand why he's no longer doing it, but I, I replaced him, and, and I was a good soldier to the people at General Mills up until they laid off like 800 people. Um, and the B has gone non-union. So, can't do it. Won't do it. I, I respect Screen Actors Guild too much. I respect After too much. And and won't do it. So, that's where they're at right now. I know they've had a few bees since me that just continually fall at the wayside. Um, you know, I know a lot of times they'll go up to Canada to find an actor who will do something non-union. Um, although these days it's not going to be terribly tough to find people here to do non-union because, you know, with COVID, a lot of things are, are pretty limited. Um, but yeah, that was, I mean, that was a fun gig. I, they even flew me out to Atlanta to be on the set with Usher, uh, cause we did a commercial with him and they said, Oh, we, we love when you improvise, Charlie, just come on down and hang out with him. Okay. And that, I did the same thing with Nelly, did the same thing with all these other people, you know, and then, uh. Like I said, it's it's gone non-union, so there, there's no way I could be a part of that. It's funny. I that's exactly what I thought when I looked and I saw how long you did it, and I know how everything yeah. everything has gone non-union now. I mean, yeah, because you know, why, why? It doesn't behoove them to to pay a union actor that if if they don't care, you know. I mean, but you you could tell a difference. I mean, I, I think our union has some of the strongest actors in in the world, you know. So. Uh, I don't know. There's, there's a clear difference. Well, now, as you do your voice work, is there certain <clears throat> characters, like you say you're more, you know, you're an every, you can be an everyday guy, but are there characters, what are some of the characters that you've really enjoyed? I mean, is there, you said, man, this is, this is awesome. Like, what are some characters that you've loved? Because you've done so many shows. I, um, my favorite, my favorite show that I ever did was uh, Kick Patowski, which was a Disney show, Disney XD. And that came out, I think that was like one of the first shows on Disney XD when they were looking for shows that were for boys. You know, it was kind of like this more rough and tumble version of Disney, but for boys. And uh, it it was great. I I, I loved doing that. I loved the people that were involved with it, all the way from Henry Winkler to Maria Bamford to um, uh, Will Forte. To I mean, we just had great, great people. Matt Jones played Gunther on this thing. Um, it was just great from top to bottom. It was really good, and we did a couple seasons of that. And you know, it just kind of had its run. And then there was problems up top, and people arguing with other people about which way the show should go. One, you know, I think Disney wanted more songs and hugs, and the guy who created it was like, "No, this has to be this way." So you know, everyone else suffers because no one could get along. Uh, but that. That truly was like one of my favorite little characters to do. I, I, I really enjoyed that show. Um, I'm trying to think more than anything. Uh, I'm doing a couple shows right now that I have to say I, I really love these two characters so, so much. Um, they're doing Harriet the Spy, uh, which is a Jim, Henson's, uh, Jim Henson production. 
It'll be, uh, I think it's on Apple. Uh, Jane Lynch is in it, Lacey Charvet. Uh, I, I play a little 11-year-old boy named Sport uh, in New York. It all takes place in New York. And then they're also, I'm doing another show right now on Nickelodeon called Big Nate. I don't know if you know that. It, it's a book series. It was a very popular book series called Big Nate. And I play Chad, again, another 11-year-old boy, a little fat red-headed 11-year-old boy who's got some dark, dark demons. And I will say, and these are two shows that I do right here in my little booth, and those are probably two of the most fun characters that I've done in a long time. They're, they're really, really fun. Now, how do you prep your voice, not like your actual voice, how do you prep when you're going to do a character, how do you prep how you're going to make the character sound? Because, you know, 11-year-old boys, you're doing two 11-year-old boys, they, they probably sound differently. But how do you sit yeah. there and get it in your head and you go, you know, because that's harder than I think would be harder than going in to just a regular acting audition. Because regular acting audition, like, yeah, you know, we just don't like his face. But for this, they're, yeah. like, they're like, man, he just, we were expecting something else and he just struck out. How do you do that? <laughs> and have you gotten better at it because you've been doing it for so long? Yeah, I think I, I probably have gotten better at it, or at least I'm... I'm probably a little wiser as to what they're really looking for. You know what I mean? It's like you don't you don't necessarily want a true eleven year old. You want a, re- a good representation that's this or that of. Um, and you know sometimes they sometimes they have no idea. So like for Kick Batowski, I know they had like it's so funny. I auditioned for it, didn't get it, um, but the people at wherever we're saying no 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 charlie's really the guy he should be kicked potassium like no no we have this other guy then they replaced the other guy and then i happened to be at the right place at the right time there was a new guy who came over to disney i think from nickelodeon we were doing a new disney show and he's listening to me and he says that guy should be kick potowski and they're like we know we've been trying to tell everybody anyway with that it was okay so you're like this two-foot kid with a big belly who's kind of cool and i just thought well what if he? What if he was more like a, a Clint Eastwood, but kind of a nasally and more of a cartoony? Whatever you know, and and so you just like I said, I'm not a great uh, impersonator, but I, I like to take little flavors from things and try to incorporate that into a character. Um, you know, as opposed to somebody who's like, I do this character, this like this. Like, okay, we well, all speak like an idiot, but you have to try. I think you just have to try and find something if it's appealing for that character or. You know, I, I, you also, I think, just visually, you look at something and go, I, "I hear this. I hear this guy. I know what voice he has, or what voice this girl has." You know, sometimes I'm a seventh grade girl in a show. Um, it depends. Uh, yeah, so I, I think a lot of times, you know, you have to study that. It's so funny. A lot of the video stuff that I get for video games, that's mostly just like the the young hero guy between twenty and forty who holds his sword and blah blah blah. You know. Um, and that's all pretty cut and dry. I love the animation. I love when they give you something and they just say, dude, go nuts. You know, you're a, a, a one-legged fairy who lives under, you know, a stone and you hate your parents. Whatever. Go with it. And, and I, I love that. Now, coronavirus has really changed Hollywood. And as it's you've been working because you're a voice actor and it's easier what do you think is going to happen with live production? Because, you know, I know a lot are going back, but it's so crazy now. And, you know, we have to watch ourselves. I know you've had health problems. I've had yeah. health problems. And you really have to watch, you know, I mean, it's funny you talk about Ithaca. Me and my wife were just in Watkins Glen for our one-year anniversary oh, last week. And it's the best. It was the first time we've been out since September. And it was just weird. We sat inside a restaurant because... You can't sit on Main Street of Lock and Scun because all the damn trucks go down. They make so much damn <laughs> But it's so laid out there. You know, it's so laid. Yeah. It's different. What has it been like in Hollywood? And are you are you sort of sitting there? You said you wanted to, your kids say you, that you might want to get back on screen. But are you saying, nah, I'm, I'm happy doing voiceover right now because it's, no one knows what's going to happen. Well, here's the thing. I am back on camera now. I, um, back in March... It might have been in February. I, I did six episodes. There's a new series on Apple Plus. It's called For All Mankind. Actually, it's not a new series. It's a, it's going into its second season. Uh, it's about NASA. Uh, the first season, I believe, was in the 60s. 
this season that I've joined in is in the 80s. Uh, I should look for a pic. I can't really show you. I don't have it on my computer. I was going to do a screen share. I wear a wig. Um, so I did, uh, I've done six episodes prior to coronavirus, and I just recently did two more episodes. I play Paul Michaels, a news anchor. He's like a Ted Koppel, uh, you know, a nightly news guy who talks about all the NASA stuff. So I'm, like, always in the background, in the foreground, whatever. Um, anyway, that that's really interesting. It's a really interesting process. You know, I, I first go to Sony. I had to have two COVID tests that same day. The next day, I go to a wardrobe fitting. Had to have a, a another rapid COVID test that morning before they could see me. Then I show up Monday to work again, right before I could see anybody. I have to have another COVID test. Um, when you're on the set, they group you, group A, B, C, D. Um, so, like my group can only be the wardrobe director and makeup, then group B is like the grips, group C is the whatever, uh, and so it's very, you know, not rolling, masks on. What's good about my stuff is I'm all alone, just like with a big news desk, so it's me and a teleprompter, and I don't have to act with anybody, I don't have to get any COVID stuff on me, but I'm, I'm not like weird about it anyway, I know I'm probably too cavalier, but I'm not, I'm not cavalier with other people. Um, you know what I mean? And I, I totally respect that. And the mask is on whenever anybody needs that. I totally, totally get it. For me, I'm probably maybe a little bit more lax than I should be because, like, you you know, I am a, I'm a cancer survivor. And so I probably do have a, a compromised immune system. I don't know. It doesn't feel compromised. In fact, I haven't had a cold, in, like, forever. I think it's because I have so much cancer medicine inside of me that it just kills every fucking thing in me. You know, I don't know. Now, anyway, what is what is crafty like now? Do they have crafty anymore? Because I was thinking, because crafty hands are always going in, doing there you go, oh, you go. And yeah. then what what happens? No, now the hands just point. You go, can I have that and that and that? And the guy or gal will say, okay, sure. And they put the together a nice little thing with it, and they hand you whatever you want. Um, th- yeah, I actually did a commercial with my daughter during this hiatus. Also during this hiatus, during COVID, uh, Quinn, my daughter Quinn, and I did a. Uh, it's for Freedom Mobile. It was with Will Arnett, so I play Will Arnett's brother, and she plays the niece. Um, and that was our that was our first introduction to COVID on the set, and and it was like that with the with the craft service. It was so weird, you know. Then then they wrap stuff for you, and it's, it's an odd thing. It, it's not as fun as it used to be, but listen, it's like you know, sex in the '80s because of AIDS. It just wasn't as fun anymore, but. It'll, it'll get fun again. People will figure it out. Well, you know what sucks? I've done background and stuff before, and my wife has. The fun thing about doing background is when you go to Crafty, you take all those granola bars. Like, you'd walk out with, <laughs> it, with like, you'd come home, and i go, hey, honey, what did you get? And she's like, oh. And they always have the good nature or the honey nature. Oh, yeah. And, and she'd be like, hey. I'd be like, all right. And we'd be like, hey, we don't have to eat. <laughs> that, that's a total staple. That and Pop-Tarts, I think, are in every craft service table. I think it's like their law. So, so what else is going on right now? You know, you're adapting to Corona. You're working. You did, which when that was Chris Bauer was on the show. You're on uh, the the he was in the first season. Yes. Yeah. Who he's an amazing actor, nicest yeah. guy, and that it has a great a great cast. Um, yeah. So now he's what, in something. He's in something else that I think we're watching right now on Netflix. Um, he was supposed to be going to shoot a, a show about wrestlers, and then COVID took off. Oh, really? And it didn't happen. Yeah, because he was on my show. Probably eight months ago, no, seven, six months ago, and uh, you know, because I, I just watched um, the uh, the Deuce on HBO because I had the one co-creator uh, George Pelicano, George Pelicanos on it, and so I sent Chris a message on Facebook, and he said, "Hey, if Pelicanos did it, I'm in," you know, and and, <laughs> nice. and you know, and then I watched, and I watched the Deuce, and it was so good. If you haven't watched the Deuce, watch it. It was a James Franco, and it's such yeah. a good show. Yeah, does he plays he plays twins, doesn't he? In that, yeah, it's it's really yeah. good. I didn't know what to expect, and I was like, "Wow, holy crap, this is great!" So I think I think we started it and stopped for some reason. Um, we'll, we'll probably get back into it, but I, you know, Steve, I, I've been so lucky. I'm like working more during COVID than I think I ever have before. Between like the the cartoon series that I did, the for all mankind, the commercial, little commercial, and then also I did another pilot. This thing called Arthur Prescott and the Evil Alien. And it's with me 
and a bunch of uh, Groundling people, Mindy Sterling, uh, just really, really funny, funny people. I don't know how I got involved in it, but I did. Um, so I'm Arthur Prescott in this thing, and so we just haven't had a chance to have our little premiere because they want to do it in person, but obviously we can't, but it's ready to go and ready to be seen, and, and so we'll see what happens. Also, I don't know, I can't talk about that thing. I, I created a show, and... I'm like 99.9% certain it's sold. Uh, Melissa Gilbert is in it with myself, and it's a reality show. It's called Charity Case. And it's basically, I, I, um, two years ago, I, I ran for this thing called Man of the Year with the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. And I won. I was able to raise like $350,000 for these people. Because of that, me and a buddy of mine from Jersey, North Jersey, my buddy Matt Gicken, who's in Florida now, um, we said, you know, it's been so great raising money for charity. I don't want this to stop. Let's. What, what can we do? So we kind of created this vehicle where we go across the world, you know, across the country from Alaska to Vermont to Wyoming, and we find really great charities that just need attention, that need recognition, that need awareness. And so me, Melissa, and Matt, we go from town to town, either putting on a little show or doing whatever we can. We get somebody in the dunk tank, and, you know, if it's in Santa Barbara, maybe we could get Pink to show up and do a song, whatever it is, um, to make money for these lesser-known charities, you know, Bullies uh, for Bulldogs. There's so many great just animal charities out there. So that's that's what we're going to be doing. As soon as, but, oh, and so it was sold, um, but now we're on hold just because of COVID. We can't really be traveling with the crew that we need to, to travel with. So, so ho- hopefully beginning of the year we'll start. You're busier than ever. Yeah. Yeah, but yet my wife will still say I'm the laziest sack of shit in the house. You know, it's <laughs> you can't get a break. Well, man. This or that. <laughs> I want to thank you for coming on. Um, it was a pleasure talking to you. You know, I'm a fan of your work, and uh, I'm glad we got we hooked up. Carlo, you know Carlo Bellario. And, uh, He's, dude, he is, he is the best. In fact, he came to both my shows out in Fairlawn, New Jersey, so... He knows. See, He's awesome. I've I've never met him. We're friends on Facebook. And about a few months ago, I interviewed D.B. Sweeney. And D, oh, yeah. And D.B. said, D.B. said, do you know anyone who has podcasts? And I knew Carlos, so I sent him a message. I said, hey, because us, us podcaster guys, we hang together. It's like, yeah. hey, you want you want D.B. Sweeney? He goes, yeah. And then I just got him. I'm supposed <laughs> to get him Gregory Harrison. I got him Reed. I get Reed Diamond, like tons of shows. Everyone likes to, everyone likes to talk to Reed because he's the nicest guy around, he, and he's a great actor. He's an so, unbelievably great actor. But that's how I, that's how I know him. And I said, reach out. Homicide, to homicide. So yeah. So anyway, I want to thank you. Uh, now, do you tweet? Do you tweet at all? Are you on Twitter? You know, I I did originally, but I got to be honest with you, man. Like every time I go on on the Twitter thing, it's just it's it's so negative. Right. It's like the first thing you see is like f this guy, f this girl. It's just. I can't deal. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's just a feel bad platform. I feel like every now and then I gotta post something on there because I'm doing a convention or whatever, and you know, and I have to do the obligatory plug for it, um, which is fine. You know, it's buttering bread, and I totally get that, and I'll do it. I'm very gracious, but just like to sit and read, it's like, oh, why is everybody? I was bad yesterday. I said, if you think Carson Wentz is elite, you think McDonald's is fine dining. And I was, I was, I was bad. I do. I sit there. I do my Carson. How, how things. dare you? But, okay, one quick question. I, I I forgot to ask you this. The conventions. Yeah. What are conventions like for you? Because I know people who <sighs> love them. I know. I know. When when someone says get a hobby, they don't mean a convention. You got to stop doing. It. It's just, yeah, people love it, and I do to a certain degree. I like being the, here. These are the, the pros about the pluses about going to a con. When you record a, a cartoon, you're basically recording it in a vacuum. So you really don't know the effect that your product has on anybody. So I sit here in this thing, and it's like, okay, I'll make my fart noises like my kids say. That's what I do for a living. Make my fart, and, and you walk away. You go to a convention, and there's that 8-year-old girl who says, you know... I really love you as this character, and can you make that noise? And, and so you, see, and then they light up, and they're like, "Oh my God, that's really the Honey Nut Bee," or whatever you you're doing for them at that moment. Um, that's really great. 
Uh, I, you know, but then you deal with a lot of people who are almost challenging, like, hey, Charlie, in episode number 274 of <laughs> uh, The Loud House, when the doctor says, can you do that again? Okay, why did you do it that way? You, you kind of get into these crazy conversations. <laughs> Another plus is this. Um, a lot of the people that do attend or who do like to collect the autographs and meet the cartoon characters are on the spectrum. Um, and so I think in that regard, it's really great to be there because for them, it's like that chance to not have any problems in their life. They're just like so focused on you and your character and whatever voice you just did for them. And I'll give them, you know, every minute of the day. You, you know, you, you can't get enough of that because that's the best part about being or having even this much celebrity. If you could do any good with your celebrity, you got to do it, you know, not just for your It's just it, it feels great. And it's what we're here to do, you know, to pay it forward. Um, so that part of it, I really like. But it is tough. I mean, it's a grind. There's just so many people that I would never hang out with in my real life lined up to I, I don't know it's just and it's also an odd feeling too that like you know they're paying to get your <laughs> autograph that I would normally just like say here I'll give me your phone I'll do whatever you want for free but you sit there and you watch your handler take my it's I don't know it's just it's very un-Jersey like you know what I mean it's, crazy. it's weird anyway I want to thank you for taking the time people go All right. look up Charlie and, uh, and, yeah, look him up and go watch his work, listen to his voiceover stuff. Go to my website, people, coopertalk.net. You can find over 800 episodes there. Email me, cooper, coopertalk.net, Twitter, at coopertalk. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.